Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. What do Johnny Wad and Dirk Diggler have in common? You guys, uh, this is a family show, so I can't say too much on it, but if you like to look good naked and you care about your <clears throat> performance, then it could be the program for you. This week, John talks a little year in review, recounting the history of the Boogie Nights-inspired tongue-in-cheek program Johnny Wad. He also reflects on how his perspective has changed over the year, potentially as a result of treating his brain through diet. His passion for building faster machines and improving his personal shortcomings top the list of 2019 goals. Our last episode of 2018, people, and it is more than a damn snack. Here it is, episode 291. Cal, you want to take the lead? Mm, my best impression of Luke? Yes. <laughs> Power Athlete Nation, what is up? No, you didn't do the way you got, what is up? Yeah. You got to get the gravelly voice. Oh, you mean his beard rubbing the microphone? <laughs> and then you have to say people and ladies and gentlemen over and over again. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special show for you today. A special guest, John Wellborn. Reporting on location. From the other room. So <laughs> we went to go launch or do our podcast today, and the whole podcast is hinged upon a microphone splitter that you know allows us to all kind of listen in on the soundboard. But uh, Luke Summers and his infinite desire to control the power out the universe hides the splitter and takes it with him wherever he goes it's all about the wires john well it, it's like you know he can't sleep at night unless he knows the splitter is in a safe place locked in his glove compartment <laughs> in his truck at the airport so what we had to do is us you know being doers and not bunters decided to send john on location to the other room so <laughs> you know you know what's interesting though is we could, we could just purchase another splitter <laughs> No, that's blasphemy. More wires? We have enough wires. You know what I think I might do? I might go on Amazon and just order, you know, maybe like a few hundred of them because they're really like about 25 cents a piece. I had never seen a splitter until uh, Luke brought it on an airplane once, and I, I didn't even know such a thing could possibly exist. I didn't know you could split wires. <laughs> well, you, you know why he does that? He does that to make friends. He's like watching a movie and he like offers the person next to him the splitter, and then at that point, they're like locked into Mortal Kombat of like, hey, so what are you thinking? What are you doing? It's like and the nerd. Why, while they're actually watching Mortal Kombat Annihilation. <laughs> With Luke? Yeah, that's the that's his go-to movie. Enters a Mortal Kombat of words while watching Mortal well, Kombat. I just figured we watched Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift. The best Fast and Furious movie. I'm still waiting to see Speed. He was never able to download that torrent. Um, you mean Keanu Reeves? Yeah. Speed? My top. I am an FBI agent. And oh, that's, top that's, Keanu movie. That's, uh, that's a different movie. Point break. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Oh, so, no. no, they're all the same, aren't they? No, no. Keanu plays Keanu, but all he, the different plots. No, are he's an extremely diverse actor with a very skill set. FBI agent in Speed as well? No, he's a SWAT team guy. Oh, that's right. Keep up. And oh. hero. Yeah, and he well. stole my heart. <laughs> Yeah, I uh, I do love the uh, Keanu Reeves memes all over social media. <laughs> like yeah. how, 
uh, how like it like shows him like sitting on like a, a train. They're like, he's just a normal dude on a train. And like, uh, they basically have created this whole Keanu Reeves folklore that mm-hmm. uh, I've never really ever researched to figure out if any of it's true or not. I think he's, yeah, about how he's so charitable and he's like just a guy just like you and me. And he just kind of squirrels his money away and I don't know, probably orphanages in like Mongolia he, that we don't know about. He did a uh, pretty amazing thing. So when they made the Matrix, they couldn't afford to pay him. So he took all like the foreign distribution rights, I think is the way it works. So his, uh, his agent, you know, who went in and negotiated the contract was like, you can't really pay him. That's okay. He just wants all the foreign distribution rights of uh, the matrix and all the movies going forward. If there's any others. And so Uh, they signed that over and the foreign distribution rights were worth like exponential, uh, like, you know, and, and what's funny is they don't list him as one of the highest paid actors, but I think he might be one of the richest based off of the sheer fact mm-hmm. that like you know that was billion dollars worth of you know billions and billions of dollars worth of revenue on that on that movie role i do like the one that they posted where he's like if you think the matrix was a movie you're wrong it was a documentary i'm always like oh i knew it <laughs> man i, I, I love I, it that's right up my alley dude to this well I, I keep secretly hoping that we just wake up out of the pod somewhere like oh shit i know gosh i watch i get on these like youtube lecture wormholes where you know you have you have uh, professors at varying universities talking about how our experience of the world is really potentially just a hologram and like this <laughs> is all a simulation on a flat earth uh, right. <laughs> dude, uh the the other day it was pretty funny i saw one where the guy put he's like you know i would rather have uh, a world full of flat earthers than one like anti-vaxxer uh vacciner and I, mm-hmm. I was like man that's uh that's pretty fucking insane um, because unfortunately I don't know anybody that's ever, ever physically experienced the flat earth has literally gone out there and been like, yep, no, it's flat. And here's my proof. It's always these like complex hyperbolas of information that they put together. Um, but actually like the uh, anti-vax thing, like I, I try not to be a conspiracy theorist, but I also like the vaccine thing always kind of makes me a little nervous because, uh, you know, the fact that the government went in and said, uh, anything that happens based off the vaccine, uh, you cannot sue. And like, you know, nobody's responsible Crazy, but right? they basically put laws in place to prove to me, if there's no law to prevent oversight, then technically that's kind of the smoking gun on a lot of things. And so, well, you know, you know, it's interesting. I can't really speak to the conspiracy theory side of it, but just anecdotally from my personal experience, this is the first year in so many years that I actually got a flu shot. My doctor guilted me into it and told me that uh, legitimately, she, she said that it was my social responsibility to do it. And I hadn't done it in years previous. And I thought, you know what? fuck it. I'll just get a vaccine. And this is the first year I got the full blown flu, like legit full blown flu, like, um, in probably like five years. And I mean, I just thought, you know, I don't really, there's some, there's like, there's like thousands of strains of the flu. Like how can I be sure? I I don't buy it. So one year, same deal in Philadelphia, Andy Reid mandated everybody had to get a flu shot. Uh, so I go in and I get my flu shot. I hadn't been sick like, gee, since I was a little kid. Um, I'm not kidding you. A few days later, I got the worst flu and almost didn't play in a game. And I remember after the game, I told him, I'm like, next year, you can go stick your flu shot up your fucking ass. And, and, and uh, he was like, what do you mean? I'm like, dude, I almost fucking died out there. Cause he was like coming in, I'm on IVs. I'm sick. You got to play. And I was like, fuck you and your flu shot. I was like, I was never sick before this bullshit. Yeah. And, uh, cause he was going to find people. And then that next year, 
uh, when, it, when all of a sudden it came around, it's like, Hey, we have flu shots for those of you guys that want them. They're not mandatory. I was like, and, uh, I've never got a flu shot. And the only time I've gotten sick in the recent year was, um, this year, my kids came home with something called fifth disease or fifth virus, uh, which is like, some, I, I don't know, dude, it's some wacky thing. These kids got all of a sudden, like I, I told my wife, I'm like, man, like my hips and my knees and my shoulders are aching. Like I got arthritis and I got like this back pain. And um, it like ninja blow darted me and I was on the couch for like two days on um, like a Thursday, a Friday and a Saturday. And then like I felt better on Sunday. Mm-hmm. And then uh, they sent like this note home from school that like, hey, this fifth disease or fifth virus deal is going through the, the school. And I'm like reading the um, like the symptoms, like splotchy skin. And they're like in adults, uh, severe joint ache, similar to arthritis, back pain. And it like went through it. And I was like, oh, fuck, that's what I had. And so, of course, I go to the doctor and uh, the doctor's like, never heard of it. Doesn't look, I've never heard of it. It must not exist. And so I was like, man. So then I asked Kate, I'm like, you never know, like witch doctors or any weird fucking people around I can go see. So she recommended me some, some guy who gave me some like, I don't know, homeopathic stuff. I was fucking better within like a day. So I just, uh, I, I don't know. Like it's, um, yeah, I'm just going to leave it there. But it just, yeah, that whole thing kind of bothers me. But uh, I think for today, we were going to text what, what was on the agenda for today for our, for the premier podcast in. Strength, Strength and, and conditioning. I think the first the first thing should be if we want to talk any shit about intro. Luke. Well, I think we already did that. He's a wire guy. Well, he's not here to defend himself. So no, I think if there's anything uh, else, when, when you control wires, you control, <laughs> control information. Information. <laughs> he's become the uh, uh, um, New- uh, Newman, Newman with the mail. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. no, he's become uh, the Newman of power athlete. He's like I'm controlling the wires. So, so, so yeah, we got that out of the way. Right. Uh, I, I want to lead off with the story. So in the green room at the Power Athlete Symposium 2018, uh, I sat down with John and Jim Kiabasso, and Jim was asking some good questions, and he asked about the, the origin, the history of Johnny Wad. Mm. And you laid out there, this is actually based off of a person. And the I guess the gist, so I think our listeners should learn the history of why Johnny Wad and the themes behind it. Yeah. So, all right, let me go back in history a little bit. Uh, and, but I'll, I'll start in the beginning, then I'll go back and I'll move around a little. Um, <laughs> the other day I was sitting at home and I was wanting to strike up some conversation on the Johnny Wad uh, f- Facebook page. Cause I got like an email. It's like, Oh, Johnny Wad hasn't posted or got any like serious interactions. And I was like looking at the Instagram. I was like, you know, I, I don't do enough to like, rabble people up on that stuff. So I just kind of posted up a question like, Hey, how do we grow the horde? How do we make this into a global phenomenon? I should have wrote underneath it. No serious answers, please. I was just looking for some comedy. Uh, at that point, um, everybody who's a business life coach slash, you know, want to be Tony Robbins. That's and a lot of people not doing the program, which I thought was interesting that people were making business and strategic recommendations that don't follow the program, which I find a lot of irony too. But uh, all of a sudden, dude, everybody launches in with this, like, you know, you need to invest into marketing with SEO, you know, you need to give away more free stuff. I mean, it's just like, I'm like reading this stuff. And I was like, um, dude, uh, oh, you, you know, my other favorite one was that, you know, Johnny Wanda isn't really in the power athlete family, it doesn't have its own icon and this and I like went through it. And I'm like, I don't think people know the history of Johnny Wanda. I think that they don't understand where Johnny Wad sits in the grand hierarchy of power athlete. And more importantly, 
uh, just the humor associated with it. So you guys obviously know I did this little thing called CrossFit Football many years ago. We had a extremely successful program that was, you know, designed to help CrossFitters, you know, get off the crack pipe of metabolic conditioning and bang some heavy weights. Uh, we went in and virally infected CrossFit like herpes on spring break and got everybody convinced that they needed to be strong, which they do. And all of a sudden, there was a dedicated strength program in every single gym. And, you know, uh, the powers that be, i.e., you know, CrossFit CEO was unhappy that, you know, we had virally infected CrossFit and, thought, and taught everybody that they needed strength. That strength was just not another element of fitness. It was the platform of which everything else is built upon, which if you look at, you know, the CrossFit games and just about everything else, shit's a lot easier. When you can squat 500 pounds, a 95-pound barbell thruster gets a lot easier. So um, we did that program. All of a sudden, you know, uh, Luke made a funny recommendation about, you know, comparing some guy's CrossFit program to, uh, you know, uh, I think it was an Outback Steak New York, which are delicious, and Harry reposted it, and uh, we ended up, you know, parting ways with the mothership. And at, at the time that it was getting ready to part ways, um, or actually before that, uh, I was looking for a way to transition CrossFit football as it was going away. So we were into this rebrand for CrossFit SSA. They didn't want me to give away free programming anymore, but I had thousands a day people or thousands of people a day coming to the CrossFit football page. I mean, we did everything we could. Do you remember, Kelly, when we had them email us for the workout? Oh, just yeah. so that we could do a manual accounting of people. And mm -hmm. like, it just was like, it became this impossible thing where you had all these people following the program. People didn't really want to like contribute. They didn't want to give information. So the best way I knew how to do it was bring it in house. And we worked with Train Heroic. And I remember I was thinking of like, what do I call this thing? What do I call uh, CrossFit football? What do I call this evolution of the program? And I was actually, I remember I was driving on the 73 on the toll road coming back from Elisa Viejo, uh, head back to Newport Beach. And I was on the phone with Ben Crookston from Train Heroic. And I was talking to him like, hey, man, I want to do this generalist program. We're going to do power athlete. And I kind of went through the whole thing. And somewhere right before the toll road, um, I think I was talking about like, I was like, man, I'd love to do something like Boogie Nights. Like uh, something like, you know, Dirk Diggler. And we were kind of like going back and forth talking about Boogie Nights. And I'm like, you know, CrossFit has got a lot of, uh, um, I guess, what's the right word? There's a lot of hypocrisy to say the least, right? There's this whole idea where you're like, you know, seeing these girls on Instagram or different stuff, like posting these, um, you, know, you know, Bible quotes about, you know, you know, John 317 and they go through the whole thing. But yet, like, I can see like three, three inches of ass meat hanging out of the bottom of your shorts. Yeah. It's like hyper-sexualized fitness. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's hyper-sexualized. I mean, uh, like I played in white spandex. Uh, that's how I made, made my money was in white spandex and never at which point was I like, God, I wish that these shorts were literally just like cut right underneath my fucking crotch. And like, I was wearing a half shirt just right now on the training. Oh, like, a lot of those outfits I realize might be comfortable, but I don't really think they are. So like, you know, and you really don't have to nude up in 30 degree weather. So I just, uh, I, I just kind of grew to kind of laugh at like the hypocrisy of this whole thing where it's like people are talking about performance and diet and all this, but yet they're talking about how their performance wrapped up. But then every shirtless picture is them in the mirror with great lighting, trying to show their before and after. And I'm like, okay, so is this aesthetics? Because all you're doing is showing me a physical before and after. Like, so now you have abs, you didn't, you know, you know you're not telling me, I'm, I'm not seeing shit about your training. 
And CrossFit Football Power Athlete has always been about performance. And I always believe that if uh, foreign policy function, that if your performance goes up and you're you know, able to do what you think that you can do, the physic, the you know, the physicality, the physique, the uh, external will begin to match that. But if it doesn't, who gives a fuck, right? If you're able to, you know, do these things and crush it, and maybe you don't have visible abs, then you know what? Like more power, you know, like it, it doesn't mean that every person is the same. I think it was, um, I can't remember uh, the girl who was a pro basketball player who was a CrossFitter. Uh, she's from Southern California. Um, uh, Torrance, I can like see her face. Uh, she's an Asian girl and, uh, she competes in the games, high level conformer. And she's like, I don't have abs. I'm not as lean as these other girls. And like, she was like upset about it. I'm like, you go to the games. Like at the end of the day, I go back to what John Runyon said. I, I get paid a lot of money to be this fat and he got paid $10 million a year to, to look like that. So for me, it's like the aesthetics are great, but at the end of the day, what does your performance look like? You could be the hottest chick, you know, the best body and all this stuff, you know? Uh, and if you can't perform, then what are you? You're basically a Barbie doll who's doing, you know, baby Botox injection videos on Instagram. And, uh, it just doesn't, it, it doesn't compute for me. So I wanted to create a program that both had some badass training, but kind of took a tongue in cheek approach towards this whole, uh, you know, I'm training for performance. Not really. I'm just training to look good on, on the weekends or, you know, on vacation or at the local gym. So I'm going to say that I'm training for, for performance, but I'm going to fucking starve myself into anorexia and create all these, you know, neurological disorders and whatever it looks like, uh, so that I'm can look the way I want. And if people just came out and said it, like, I'd be fine with it, but it's just this strange kind of hypocrisy. So I, I thought I'm like, you know what, what would be like a great, uh, kind of Dirk Diggler. And at that point, I don't know if you guys remember in uh, boogie nights when all of a sudden he says the name to, uh, um, Burt Reynolds and all of a sudden he sees it like explode into like blue and, and pink neon and uh, Dirk Diggler all of a sudden I pictured and I saw Johnny Watt <laughs> right Johnny Watt as you guys know Johnny Watt was the name that John Holmes one of the most famous porn stars um that was his like screen name and like the adventures of Johnny Watt except it was W A D D like AK the Watt mm -hmm. and so I just kind of thought that there was some fun kind of mixing of words and a little bit of a reference and now, you know, and, and just, uh, I just thought that I yeah, could, like a big double entendre. It's so great. Yes. I, I love it. I mean, and, if it, yeah. go ahead. Oh yeah. No, no. Uh, I, actually the word I was looking for was a double entendre. And uh, I sent this gal like a picture of me and I uh, had her like create like a Johnny Wood cartoon. So that's like the icon you see is actually me drawn as a cartoon. We like wrote all this funny kind of copy and spoof. And I'm like, man, I wanted people just to get back to have to, to train. I wanted people to have fun. I wanted it to be spoof. I wanted it to be hilarious. I wanted to be able to write like, like funny narratives. And I wanted to make like over sexualized things. I wanted to have to be pop culture with superheroes and cycles. And I just wanted to have fun. And that's what Johnny Watt has been for me. Um, so I kicked this thing out on Facebook and Instagram, like, how do we grow the horde? You know, and like, I didn't say like user base. I didn't say, how do we get more people in? I was like the horde. How do I, how do you increase the horde? And I just like, when I think of that, I just think of like when in, uh, um, in, um, Russell Crowe in gladiator, when that guy, you know, with the fake wig is like in the barbarian horde, we skip you, you know, and they all like ride in. Uh, dude, I love that scene. And I thought like, man, how do, we, how do we get more people on horses riding in general? Oh my God, dude, I got like uh, people like 
it needs a rebranding. So it's more in the power athlete family. I don't like the name. It, I'm like, Jesus, dude. And then this one guy was pretty funny. A guy's like, I'm tired of doing supine rows and barbarian split squats and barbell lifts. And I was like, well, the cycle we've been doing a lot of unilateral movements. Cause if you look at part of the cycling, not only do we cycle through, um, you know, higher volume, lower vol or, uh, lower volume with greater intensity. We hit rep maxes. We use, we use uh, compensatory acceleration rep maxes, which is just is part of our power athlete cycles, but we hit some hires. We do front squats and back squats and we kind of, you know, we do a lot of single leg stuff. This cycle has been a lot of unilateral movements. And then I've also been trying to do a bunch of isometric holds followed by max reps. So the easiest way for me to do that is with uh, supine ring isometric holds with a lot of rows. I mean, so there's like, limitations to what I can program because one people don't have all the equipment and two, a lot of people train by themselves. So I'm constantly in this mode of like, Hey, if somebody has like limited equipment and they're training by themselves, how can I make the program most effective opposed from like, Hey, I got a training group of three people. I have a gym full of everything. So like sometimes I err on the side of like simplicity and try not make shit too complicated. Um, and at the end of the day, like we cycle through things like, uh, right now we're just, you know, kind of finishing up some of the, some of the strength work and we're trying to create a base. It's like a guy told me on the field strong, like in one of the comments, I just felt like in field strong, uh, I didn't get burned down to the ground that if I don't walk out of the gym feeling like, you know, I need a hug and burn myself to the ground and I'm destroyed. I feel like I didn't work out. I was like, well, then he needs to go talk to a professional like <laughs> therapist about well, that. But that's the thing. I mean, it's, it's, it's got people in this mindset. And I remember I did a gig for, uh, um, for the seals over in Hawaii. And I remember they had me talk to one of the guys who told me, he said, unless I walk into the gym and I destroy myself to the point of like crippling and crawling myself out, I don't feel like I trained hard enough. And I was like, well, dude, that's a disorder, man. And, uh, you know, usually this manifests in chicks that like want to cut themselves and do some other weird things, but like, you don't have to hurt yourself to get better. Yeah. So I actually, I mean, that mentality it can be harnessed for good. I mean, it can be a very positive thing and motivational and I don't know, get people to achieve goals. However, I think when you apply it to the physical world where you're putting stress on your body and you have no barometer for, okay, um, you know, if I do this, you know, for 10 reps, then a hundred reps must be fantastic. You know, if you don't have an understanding of like that application being detrimental to your success, um, and you're just constantly seeking that feeling of absolute exhaustion in the physical sense on your body, I think, I mean, obviously it, it's, it takes a toll and it's, it's not going to get you to your goals, but I mean, that mentality altogether isn't terrible. It's what makes seals who they are, obviously. But, um, uh, like, I, I think you have to, you have to have that in your program somewhere at some point. Sure. Like all that the psychology of discomfort. Tempered. Like, uh, I don't know if you saw, but like they posted up one of like the workouts. It was like a CrossFit hero workout, or I, I forgot who did it. It was like James Hobart and those cats did like a thousand step ups with like a 50 pound weighted vest. Oh yeah. I saw that. Right on like a 20 inch box. So a thousand step ups. And they were talking about how awful it was. And like people were like jumping in to do it. And like <laughs> the better part was it was like, you know, the only reason like people weren't doing it necessarily to honor whoever the, you know, the fallen, they were doing it because it's fucking awful. And, and I, th I think like somewhere in your programming, you have to add certain things like that. And you got to have them as like these, like kind of a mental, uh, emotional, mental checks so that you can like see how far you can push yourself. Sure. So that, you know, like, uh, you know, a, the age old project, project mayhem, you, you know, uh, like, 
do I really know myself if I've never pushed myself to the limits? But mm-hmm. the problem comes down to where if that becomes your only marker for success and the only way that you can gauge improvement that, um, you know, and, and the, the analogy I think I gave years ago when somebody at a seminar asked me this, I said, hey, if, um, if you're going to build a strong, like, a, like a, a sprawling metropolis, you want to build like a big, strong building, uh, what's the easiest way to do it? And the guy was like, um, uh, I don't know, an architect? I'm like, yeah, stay with an architect, right? You find somebody who knows what they're doing. You design the building for the demands at which it's going to be placed. If you're worried about a you know 747 flying into it, then you know what? You got to build the building to withstand a 747. If you're in California, it's got to be earthquakes. You got to design it for the earthquake. And then once you decide what I'm building, what the best plate of building based upon the possible effects and what I'm looking for to do, if whether or not it would be apartment building or a you know garage or like whatever it looks like, we got to know the use, we got to know the demands, and then we got to sit with somebody who's intelligent who can lay it out. And then once we decide that we're going to break ground, what do you do? You flatten the ground. Right. You, you can't build if you're going to build something right. You got to destroy the ground. You got to flatten it. You got to grade it and make sure it's nice and flat. Yep. You and then grade you got imperfections. Yep. Yeah. And then you got to build upon it. The problem is, is if the day that all of a sudden I go great and hey, I'm, you know, I dug my foundation. Everything looks great. We start putting up sticks. It's going up and I drop another bomb and I flatten it again. And every day you basically drop a bomb and flatten your building and you never get a chance to ever really build it then how, how, how am I ever going to get? So it became this idea that like you might get into a situation where, you know, you, you have to, you know, flatten the building and then you start building, but you have to be smart and you can't literally drop a bomb on your building every single day. We saw this with the linear progression. I remember when we were testing linear progression at Balboa many, many years ago, man, we had some phenomenal gains. Everybody was able to add 10 pounds to the bar on the back squat. Everybody was making great gains. We figured out that, you know, if you had a seven to 12 little short conditioning workout with the occasional 15 minute workout, everybody continued to get excellent and was getting stronger and getting better. And then I did a little control. I threw like this, like 30 minute, like awful workout at them. Boom. Not a single person made a gain on the linear progression for probably about 10 to 14 days. And flashing back to the CrossFit football seminar, one of our first questions is we ask if you feel you're a strength and conditioning coach, raise your hand. And only a handful, they were probably high school coaches, right? Raise their hand. Everyone else didn't think, I guess, they were coaches or that CrossFit was a strength and conditioning program. But it was our mission to change that perspective that we can't just freaking level the ground every single training day. You know, we need to implement some form of periodization, you know, create a game day. Well, that, you know, and that's what people re- people don't see in field strong, like that guy being like, you know, I, I just didn't feel like I was getting anything out of field strong. You know, there was too many lateral plyo skips and I'm like, okay, well, we do a lateral plyo skip because that's side to side. We also do quick feet and we do like a lot of like sagittal plane type stuff, but at some per- at some point we have to do, um, uh, sagittal, um, frontal plane type movements. Uh, you know, within the program. So when I look at the hierarchy of the program, I constantly am counting like pushes and pulls, you know, sagittal versus frontal rotation, you know, transverse plane. And I start looking at this thing as like a complete program. And then when somebody's like, oh, we do too many Bulgarian split squats. Well, the reason we're doing all these Bulgarian split squats is because I'm trying to balance bilateral with unilateral movements. And do you know how hard it is to balance unilateral movements with bilateral movements when it looks like back squat, uh, deadlift, power clean, power snatch, 
uh, kettlebell swing, everything's a bilateral hip hinge. I mean, when you're trying to go back and look at the volume of training and kind of the movements, the way I look at it, uh, it's very difficult to start throwing in uh, unilateral movements like step squat and lunge, Bulgarian split squats in a way that people can load effectively. And, uh, you know, so then you kind of get stuck in this thing. And like the other thing, I mean, look how many pushes we do. This guy's like, we did pushups three times in one week. And I'm like, okay, so is that upsetting you? Yeah, I don't know why we're doing so many pushups. Uh, the reason is, is I'm trying to load pushups because next week we're going to do a whole bunch. And, and if I'm, if, if this week I'm going to try to get you to get 90 or hundred pushups or 200 pushups, there's a reason that we're building into more pushups. So it just becomes like, everybody is so focused on the CrossFit mentality, especially a lot of people we work with where it looks like the training doesn't have rhyme or reason. It's just up every day. Well, why do we do this? And the reason being is because we are doing a certain set of training within the six weeks that'll build upon and progress everybody. And I, I just, it, it just becomes this kind of like, Hey man, we're playing chestnut checkers. And I wonder if people just want checkers. Well, I think, the, I think the other thing too, you should keep in mind is like some of the people with these opinions, it's a handful of people, right? So you kind of have to take it with a grain of salt. We're remote coaching and, Anytime you're in that business or even, you know, you you give someone a program and you touch base with them every week or something, you have to, you have to assume that there's, uh, either maybe they're not following the program fully, or they're forming their own opinions based on possibly doing things improperly. So there's a huge room for error there and they may be not getting certain results or certain feelings because they don't have a coach there telling them, uh, you know, the purpose or the intensity or the, you know, what, whatever it is within that workout or that session or that, that training cycle, they may not be getting out what they should be. And uh, unfortunately you're going to have some people who are just, they're just going to have those opinions. Who knows? Maybe they're working out alone in their garage and they, that's their experience. So, well, that, yeah. And, and I think, um, yeah, I, uh, like it's, uh, Johnny Watt is, is really interesting in that, the, uh, the idea was always supposed to be like, like uh, I didn't program any warmups or cool downs in the old CrossFit football program. And I'll tell you, uh, I really liked it. Like I just came in, I kind of did what I want. I kind of rode the bike for a little bit. I did some push-ups, did some pull-ups, did a little bit of like kind of rotation, a little bit of accessory work, you know, kind of slammed the ball, kind of played around for probably about 15 minutes. And then I just fucking went in and tried to fucking burn the barn. Like I just went in and was like, you know what, I'm going to go in and, and like, I'm just going to like hit it as hard as I can. And I'm going to give it like realistically about 45 minutes is what I could get it done. in. I could get like one squat. And as long as it was like one major movement, when it was kind of a squat and a press or a squat and a big movement, like the bench, it kind of took me a little bit longer, but my goal was to always be in and out within 60 minutes. And I like the intensity of it. And so I think, you know, with field strong by adding kind of warm ups and a lot more stuff, it kind of pushed the training out to like 60 or 70, 75, 80, 90 minutes. And, um, you know, not everybody is willing to invest that amount of time into the training and the amount of people here, this always blows me away. The amount of people that have followed field strong. And like when they end up like, Hey, I don't want to, I, I can't follow anymore because I can't finish all the training. Uh, my, my deal was always like, why don't you just like prioritize what's most important? Well, what's most important. I always look at it like dinner. Uh, most nights when I eat dinner, I eat 
whatever my protein is my dinner. And then I usually have like a vegetable on the side. When I go out to dinner or we have more time, like maybe you go out, you get a salad, you get an appetizer and like, it looks like a full meal. I don't eat like that every single day, you know? And it's like, when you look at the training, like what's the meat and the potatoes, what's like the, really the foundation of the program. If I got time, I'm going to do it all. But if I don't have time, I'm just going to fucking jump right to my main course and just get it done. And, uh, like just the, I knew field strong and I knew power athlete is not going to appeal to everybody. Um, but I was also with trying to have a sense of humor and really just make training kind of fun and not so fucking serious. Yeah. I love, I absolutely love the Johnny wad page. I actually went back like just a couple days ago just to read through it again. Um, because I think it's hilarious. And I think that maybe, yeah, the humor goes understated for people who don't have our sense of humor, but it really is. I think it is a riff off of the cross of football kind of like tongue in cheek sort of uh, yeah. humor that we used to have on there. And, and I, and I, I don't know, I just, I really like it. I think it's, kind of kitschy and funny and stuff, but it's also like legitimately good training. So, um, and, uh, and, and there's really nobody else doing anything like it right now. No, um, you know, everybody else is like, uh, so fucking serious taking it very like, seriously, you know, yeah. like, like they got like, you know, relentless or, you know, all these different names or hero unbroken. And, <laughs> yeah. And it's like, you know, and it's like, you know, we are building a nation of unbreakable savage, you know, people that, you know, understand the meaning of internal vengeance to get, you know, I'm like reading this stuff and I'm like, Oh my God, dude. Um, you know, like at the end of the day, uh, we, we are just trying to bank sticks to have some fun so we can have some camaraderie with our friends. Anyway, anywho, next up, John, and I know we were discussing this a little bit in training, but you're getting back into the article writing training, getting, mm. Talk to me, Johnny, revved up, and you got some ideas for some articles. So I thought this would be a good opportunity to kind of talk through some ideas and share with the Power Athlete Nation what you got going Ooh. on. So talk Ooh. to us, Johnny. I'm, uh, I'm excited about this. Uh, okay. Um, you know, you guys hit me up and said, hey, are we going to do a year in review for 2018? Are we going to, you know, kind of like we had sources sought or, I'm um, sorry, uh, lessons learned and we had uh, 42 things. And so over the years, I've kind of done this reflection. And uh, this year was an interesting year for me. Um, you know, not only with Power Athlete, but, you know, with, with uh, kids and family and uh, you know, my dad passing away and just really, you know, the symposium and everything that we've been doing. And uh, as I was kind of reflecting upon it, um, I had kind of an interesting moment. I, um, I don't know if you guys, I mean, you guys probably know or don't know, but I've, and I actually talked about a little bit on my, um, uh, on my Instagram, but, uh, you know, I took a poetry class years ago in college. And when we walked in the first day, we had to uh, talk about our favorite poem and our favorite poet. And at the time it was Shel Silverstein. I always think like the giving tree, if like every child could read the giving tree and understand the message in the giving tree, uh, I really think everybody would be so much farther along. And so uh, in this class of all these like extremely deep, um, you know, Berkeley-esque people that are, you know, I'm, I'm really into 17th century French poetry. Here's this football player basically throwing out Shel Silverstein. So I get all these dirty bucks. And so um, uh, in the class, I, I was horribly out of place and like drowning. And I talked to my professor who was actually a buddy of mine. I'd taken him to some other classes and I said, man, I'm really out of place. And he's like, why? He's, I'm like, I just don't really connect with the poetry. And he said, you know, 
The reason being is that you don't identify with the, with the poets that there are the, the selected poets in the people's class. Like the people that are selecting and reading these poems and the people that they're, they're people that they connect with and you don't connect with like, you know, um, a bunch of like, you know, whiny, self-reflective poets, you know, who are sitting there drinking coffee and, you know, thinking about how terrible their lives are. You kind of uh, identify with like warrior poets. So he turned me on to a lot of different, like, you know, these guys were like, you know, warriors and kings and poetry and some of like these, you know, more heroic epics. And I really connected with that stuff. And I realized that poetry, uh, poetry is very individualized and each poem, whether it speaks to you or doesn't speaks differently to each person. And so I just had to find the poetry that spoke to me. And, uh, I came across Dylan Thomas's work, um, you know, and I remember like, do not go gentle and do that good night. And that poem was extremely impactful for me. You know, the idea of like, you know, you know, old age should burn and rave at close of day, rage, rage against the dying of the light, you know, and it's like, uh, to be able to read that, you know, the idea of like good men, the last way by crying, how bright, I mean, all of these poems, wild men who caught and sang the sun in flight. I mean, all of these pieces were so big for me. And, um, I ended up printing out the poem, uh, like typing it on, uh, on my dad's typewriter and I have it printed out and I've had it for a long time. And I remember when my dad was, was sick, uh, you know, I'd taken him to chemo and we went back to the hospital, you know, and like the outpatient deal he was at and we were just kind of hanging out and talking a little bit. He was super, you know, just at the end of it. I mean, chemo is pretty awful if anybody's ever seen it happen to anybody close to him. And I, I told him, I was like, you know, dad, uh, um, I want you to fight. He's like, I don't think I got it in me. And I actually read him that poem. I recited it to him. And uh, I don't know if like it was too late or he couldn't hear it or like it just like the the, the cancer and the sickness and the chemo was too much. Um, it just, you know, I was hoping it would give him some, some like some will to realize that like here was this poem that was, you know, written probably in the 20s or 30s, uh, you know, that still today has meaning. And like, you know, that idea of like blinding eyes could blaze like meteors and be gay, rage, rage against the dying of the light. You know, the idea that like as as the darkness is coming, you know, what is the passion that allows you to fucking stare into the darkness and like, you know, create that internal rage to fight against that darkness? And, um, you know, he ended up losing his fight. And as I went back and I, you know, I have that poem on my uh uh, in my bathroom, it sits on my counter right, you know, right next to my toothbrush. So when I get up in the morning and I'm like, you know, like doing my whole Dr. Tom Inkledon, uh, you know, uh, it, you know, mouth, uh, you know, what is it like deal? He, he put me through with like hydro peroxide and I brush my teeth. So I go through this little kind of ritual when I wake up in the morning and I always read the poem. And, you know, I mean, it's like I read it, but yet I've memorized it, which I think is funny, but I still go read it and I look at it and I got a picture of him on there. And I always think like, you know what, like, you know, in the darkest moment, uh, you know, the frail deeds might have danced in a green bay, rage, rage against the dying light, like all these little pieces. And so I went back and I was, um, and I think this is really the funny thing about college uh, and pre-internet. So kids today or people, me, whoever can like sit down and you can Google things. You can put in Dylan Thomas and like all of a sudden you see, you know, 20 million searches come up and you can go through and like kind of put in like keywords and it pulls up poems and different things and you can read it. And it's this incredible search engine. Um, when I was in college, 
uh, I knew I, I found the poem and then I had to go get a collection of Dylan Thomas's work, another book. And then I actually had to comb through and read through all of his poems to find other ones that were impactful to me as well. Um, you know, the, uh, uh, the other one is, uh, uh, you know, death shall have no dominion was one of my other, uh, other favorite ones that like dead men naked, they shall be one with a man in the wind and the West moon. Um, you know, uh, there's some other cool parts to it, you know, uh, faith in their hands and shall snap into the unicorn evil runs with them through and like all these different pieces. But like at the end of the day, uh, there were, you know, all like, so as I read all these poems to go back and I kind of always earmarked them and, so what, what was interesting to me and really where this long winded story is going is when I was in college and I read this stuff, it didn't, it, it had one meaning to me. And then 20 years later, as I go back and I reread it, it has a different meaning because I have so much more history. I'd done so much. I've become a father. I've become a husband. I've, you know, I've, I've buried my dad. I have my mom. I have my brothers. I've started business. Like when I read this stuff, I was just a, you know, 20 something year old, you know, college kid that, you know, basically rode a $300, you know, motorcycle on a shitty scooter places. And, um, you know, I had no more than 20 bucks in my pocket. It, it just like my whole life was in front of me. You know, I was, you know, one of my most pious possessions were my books. And when I left for college, I sold them all because I needed money, you know, and it's like, I'm so sad that I was so short sighted and sold all my books. But, you know, I was just like, my whole life was in front of me. And when you, when you read these things, you think that you understand the impact but then as you get older and you have wins and losses and victories and defeats and you, you know, understand that, you know, humor and, and, uh, you know, hubris are, you know, both related and, you know, you make mistakes and, you know, pride ends up kicking you in the balls a few times. And then when you read it, um, all of a sudden it takes on a different meaning. And so I think the big piece and really what I've been trying to write and kind of reflect upon is, um, how people should act, not from like a perspective of like good and bad, but that you have to have defeats that you have to go out there and you have to fail that really the linear progression on the bedrock program is really the foundation of all life that, you know, it starts out easy and you progress and you keep doing the things that you're doing. And one day it'll get heavy. And then when it gets heavy enough, you'll fail and you'll have to go back in time and rethink about what you did and not make the same mistakes and progress. Same thing happens in life. Um, you know, as a father, like raising kids is really interesting, you know, cause uh, no matter how much, or no matter how important you think something is, if the, if the child doesn't understand it or doesn't see the importance, they're not going to take to it. And so, uh, you know, as parents, you try to like, you know, work with your kids and talk with them and this, but at the end of the day, uh, the example that you set, like if your kid sees that you get up every single morning and you go out and you bust your ass and you go out and you train and you work out and that's what we do. And you come home and you eat clean, uh, then that's what they're going to assume the norm is. If you sit on your ass and eat chocolate bonbons all day and bitch and moan about, you know, how shitty the president is and this, then, you know, what? that's what children learn. Um, and I think we can only influence those closest within our circles. Uh, you know, um, as you guys know, Rob Wolf and I are really good friends. And what's pretty funny is Rob's really active on Facebook. And what he does is he posts a lot of really interesting information that's like, you know, both political, social, and he like posts this stuff up and he doesn't really give much commentary on it. He just kind of posts it. But it's really amazing to see how from the information he posts, how people view him. And I was laughing the other day, man, this guy thinks Rob Wolf is like a right wing Trump supporting, uh, like, you know, total kook. 
And like Rob's far, by far the farthest from that. Rob's not a Trump supporter. Rob's a uh, libertarian. And he just really believes that, you know, given uh, the state of America, that a lot of this like progressive liberal, uh, like liberalist ideas are really just disguised neo-Marxism. And that, you know, when you see like people that are like, you know, kind of like this pro-Trump, uh, you know, there are people that are believing you know, whether it be misguided or not, that like, you know, America can be great. I've never in my life seen a, uh, a time where people were so excited and so looking to be offended by everything. And but they are, know, I don't think they're reading poetry. Think about poetry. It's, it's these authors, their attempt to look within themselves to put you in their shoes, to deliver what they are thinking, to provide some perspective from their life. And even the guys you're you're naming and discussing, those were written 50, those were written 100, those are thousands of years ago, and you could still draw upon them and take away from those lessons. Well, well it, it's like, um, uh, so there's two, like, I, you know, people always ask me, like, oh, like, what books should you read? And, like, that's an interesting one because uh, I have a collection of books that I really love, but the problem comes down to, like, like uh, inspirational quotes is another one, like, that the fucking Instagram world, for some reason, loves to, like, post these inspirational quotes. And, like, it'll be, like, this, like, extremely imp- inspirational, uh, you know, empowering quote, and then, like, you know, I'm woman, hear me roar, and then the chick's, like, you know, hard nipples are hanging out of a seat shirt. <laughs> and, like, uh, like... Is that empowering? Yeah, but you're sitting there talking about being the best version of you. Um, you no. know, and you have like massive fake hands and lip injections. And I wouldn't say it's empowering. No, no, it's not. It's fucking. It's it's uh um it's confusing to people. And there are two really good quotes. One is uh by D. H. Lawrence, and the one is I never saw a wild thing. Sorry for uh, feel sorry for itself. A small bird will drop frozen dead from uh from a bow high uh, without ever having felt sorry for itself. Right. And I always think like, that's an interesting thing. Like, um, animals don't feel sorry for themselves. They just basically live and they do. And it's really fascinating that we have a, a whole society and, and like, dude, I, I think animal cruelty is awful. I think, uh, people that abuse animals, it's, it's pretty, yeah. I mean, that's like the lowest deal, but at the end of the day, like, you know, you have people who, you know, like, like the PETA people, which I still can't figure out. And it's like, man, like at the end of the day, like a wild thing, like I never saw a wild thing feel sorry for itself. So is feeling sorry for itself part of, you know, civilization? Um, you know, like one of the favorite shows my kids love is we love watching naked and afraid. I don't know why they love it, but like, it's like one of their favorite shows. And what's interesting is, you know, people get in these situations. Like we were watching this guy, these people were like on an Island in Nicaragua and the dude tapped out after four days. And, uh, I always ask my daughter, Jamie, I'm like, you think you could do it? She's like, Oh yeah, I could totally last longer than four days. And I'm like, well, you have to get good at, you know, bugs biting you and feeling discomfort and the whole thing. And it's like, like, it's just amazing to see like the, like, like the wild animals just exist and it comes down to like, maybe it's intelligence feel sorry. And then the other one is, is, uh, it's actually, um, Sansu, which is even the finest sorge plunged into salt water will eventually rust, which means that even like the purest and the best intentions and the greatest people in this, if they're plunged into a toxic environment will eventually erode. So that's like a huge piece I think about, um, you know, like, uh, kind of sad, but yeah, well, we have like, uh, we have some amazing brand protectors in power athlete. You know, I count you guys as like protectors of the brand with Harry and everybody understands the global mission of power athlete. The idea of like destroying mediocrity, 
you know, that like, we've kind of been stuck into this idea that like mediocrity is okay. That, you know, like, and, and I mean, and, uh, you know, CrossFit to some extent was probably, you know, built upon this idea of like, don't be a specialist, just be kind of good at everything. So I just want to be mediocre at a whole bunch of stuff. So that like the sum of the parts, man, that's not the case. Like, I don't want to be mediocre at anything. Like, I don't want to be average. I don't want to be just okay. I want to be, you know, uh, you know, great at whatever I choose to be great at. And, um, you know, the idea of like, if you, even the finest sword plunged into salt water will eventually rust. Like the idea of like, if you allow toxic people or people that don't come within your vision or don't have the same mindset, it'll eventually erode and uh, that toxic nature will end up rusting your blade. And we constantly talk about, you got to sharpen your blade, sharpen your blade, sharpen your blade. And I think, um, I think to some extent, like social media, uh, this is the one thing that I really kind of laugh about. I bet you at some point, Mark Zuckerberg just turns off Facebook. I always think on that, like you think he goes home and realizes like, shit, is this thing really the, you know, I, I think he had this utopian idea of like what Facebook could be, that it was this great way to connect people. And it was like, you know, making the world smaller place and has it lived up to his vision? Is he in a position, uh, you know, does he, he look back and reflect and say, you know what? I mean, and then you could also believe that it was some nefarious thing that was funded by the government to collect information, which is another side of the conspiracy theory. So is it doing what it intended to do? If you're believing in it as this like utopian, uh, you know, this utopian society that Facebook was this, this global connector, this global bridge, um, or was it just a way for, you know, us to be able to plug into the matrix and, you know, make George Orwell's 1984 come true. I, I don't know because I'm not on Facebook. So <laughs> uh, I'd like to delete my Facebook. Um, you should. I, I, I should, but the problem is, is, uh, all of our social media stuff's all kind of connected yeah. to it. So I have to just kind of upload, unload that. And, um, business decision. I, I, uh, you know, uh, Derek Woodsky posted a great quote the other day, which I thought was, you know, I love, I love Woodsky's life hacks. And he posted, he's like, there are really good people being, you know, making a lot of money and doing great things that aren't telling you about it on social media. Yep. And I thought that was like a great thing where it's like, you know, if it's not happening on social media and you're not posting it up, then like, really, is it, is it happening? If a, if a, you know, a tree falls in the woods and nobody's there to hear it, did it really fall? I actually was talking to Nate Austin about this the other day. So Nate and I got a chance to connect on the phone and, um, we were, I, I was just kind of laughing a little and he said, you know, it's pretty amazing. Like people on social media feel that they have to like, Oh, here's my new car or this is what I bought or this. And we were, you know, kind of going through it and he's like, man, he goes, uh, the one thing I've never seen you do is ever, you know, like, like say, Hey, like, you know, you know, Hey, look at the new truck that my wife's driving, or this is my house or that, you know, he's like, man, he goes like, that's not really ever. And I'm like, I would never do that because one, it's fucking cheesy. And two, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't believe in the age old, like, um, you have to convince people that you're successful for them to think you're successful. So they follow you. So you are successful. Like, I, I just like it. The only reason you're following, following so-and-so is because he bought a new truck or he posts his new house or here's my new watch or this or this, or, you know, here's me at the, you know, at, at the car dealership in my new Lamborghini. Uh, if that's the reason you're following me, cause you think like, oh, this dude's made it. So if I follow him, maybe I'll get like some nugget, even though it's a facade and like you lease that Lamborghini or you don't even own it. You just went to the dealership. Then to me, that feels disingenuous. 
Yeah. Those aren't the people that you want to be surrounding yourself with anyways. Would you really want, um, you know, someone like that to say, Hey, like that's, that's pretty fucking awesome. No, you, I mean, they're liking all your stuff for the wrong reasons and it's extremely superficial. Yeah. yeah those, and, and, they're, they're like a, a how many 10,000 followers. Those are all yes men. We want the guys that essentially are going to, you know, push us to take one step farther, lift that bar faster, do whatever it can to improve upon ourselves versus the affirmation. Well, I mean, so, so think about, uh, so I'll post something on Instagram and, um, let's say I, I got like, what, like 15,000 followers on Instagram. I might only get like, maybe like, I might only get a couple hundred likes. Uh, if I post something like, like at most I might get like 800 to a thousand. So like, if you think in the, the grand scheme, I get like three to 5% engagement. So, and the funny part is if I click on it, all of the people that like it are all actually people I know or know me. So it's like, there's, you know, nine, you know, all these, you know, 14,000 people out there who I don't really know that follow me that really don't ever, ever engage or like the stuff. So then that becomes kind of an interesting piece. And then you're like, are you posting stuff to try to get likes? And the only reason I, I kind of looked at it was, you know, when Harry always talks to me about user engagement. And when you kind of look at like Instagram or social media for a business, you have to look at like, Hey, what's our engagement? If we have X, 50,000 followers, how many people engage? And I think it's just a way of kind of monitoring that. And Harry asked me, I'm like, I don't know, man, I'm, I'm not necessarily uh, running a social media page for engagement. I'm doing it because I think it's an interesting thing. like an interesting way to chronicle time for me. Uh, I post things that are meaningful at that moment, but I also have pictures on my phone that do the same stuff. Uh, I, I feel really weird about posting pictures of my kids and my wife. Um, just because, uh, I think like, um, those things are private to me and I don't really like to share all that stuff with the rest of the world. So I think that like, I'm kind of, uh, I'm kind of selfish with some of the stuff. Um, I'm selfish with the process. I'm sure I'm selfish with, uh, like I, I just want to share it with the people that are most, in, like uh, important to me. And I think that's a really interesting thing where you have people that are, you know, so, so like, so, uh, uh, open book and so sharing with like millions of people. And so thirsty. <laughs> oh, and it just for recognition or something. I, oh, I don't dude. really know validation. And it is, it is that it's such a scary thing. And it, it makes me a little bit ill when I think about it, because I think, you know, what, what does this mean uh, for, <laughs> not to get too deep, but society where we find validation in, uh, from strangers. And, um, it's just, it's, it's very concerning. And I think we're all a little bit susceptible to it to a degree, but you really have to be self-aware and pull the reins on things like that, because you can very quickly become, for instance, that gal who's just posting like, you know, half naked pictures with inspirational quotes to somehow balance out the sluttiness of it and make it seem legitimate. But you know, it's just, it, it's, it's, it's just but concerning, you know, attention can be dangerous. So a lot of people do different things they shouldn't do for attention. So this is almost putting us into that psychological position to crave attention to get that dopamine response versus, you know, writing a poem, you know, reading a book, building mm -hmm. a fucking truck for ourselves our friends or to you know do something that you never did before for yourself it is important to do things for yourself so mm -hmm. like I, I don't know 
Yeah, it's it's tough. I mean, I think I think if you if you're feeling happy and there's something you want to share that's positive, that's genuinely positive, that's a genuine sort of thing, then have at it. But um, I feel like people alter themselves and their identity to adhere to what they feel will receive the most attention. And that's the problem is the motivation behind it is not genuine for most people. And that that's the yeah. concern for me. It's, it's so, almost so, feed forward versus feedback feed forward. We are setting right. goals. I'm not, you know, sharing my goals publicly, you know, we're getting out there and then feedback would be, I just post something to get acknowledgement versus the sense of feed forward and accomplishing what it is we wanted to do this year. Mm-hmm. Do you think people, um, uh, the, the one thing which is pretty interesting too, uh, which I can't necessarily figure out is, uh, the amount of like, uh, I, I guess like, you know, hate, for example, like, um, if you follow, if, if you like, if you were to look at like who I follow on Instagram, I follow my friends and I follow, like, I'm really interested in like, you know, people that are amazing artists and welders and like artists, like artisans. I'm just, I'm really fascinated by people that can craft like amazing things like, uh, uh, Mick Strider from Strider knives, uh, you know, Jade and, um, uh, uh, Josh from Strider, um, you know, Rick from Starling gear. And like, I'm just really amazed by like that people that can take like a hunk of metal and like craft it into something. And like, you know, like my neighbor, you know, Jesse James, um, it was funny. Uh, I don't know if I guys told you that I bought a fire truck. Well, I don't know if publicly, but it's fucking awesome. Yeah. So I, yeah, I've never, I haven't posted anything about it, but just a little story. Uh, I have, you know, as you know, I'm into like seven, uh, into 80 square bodies and I had, uh, been kind of looking around kind of just like kind of just glancing, looking for like a crew cab. And I had a really bitching four door crew cab years ago. And I ended up kind of selling it when we were living in Costa Mesa because I didn't have a place to park it. And so I've been kind of looking for one on and off. And I just, you know, I, I knew what I wanted to pay. And, you know, as you guys know, I'm, I'm, kind of cheap in in that way. And, uh, I don't like to overpay for things because I know the value. And, um, uh, I ended up getting a truck forwarded to me by a guy that was like, Hey, check this thing out. And it, it was a, it's a 1979 GMC K 35. So it's a one ton, a uh, pretty rare cause it was a GMC, but it was a, uh, dually crew cab that with a 454 turbo 400 203, which eh, um, that's a full-time four wheel drive, which I'm not stoked about. But the cool thing is it was a fire truck that was originally a normal truck. And then it was purchased in 1991 and then converted into a fire truck, uh, like a jaws of life, with like a service bed, whole deal. And it was uh, sold to a small volunteer fire department in Montana. And the truck was used from 1992 through 2017 when I guess they got a grant to get a truck with fuel injection and they, the, the fire chief's brother sold it or sorry, the fire chief or the department sold it off to the fire chief's brother who knew about the sale, went and bought it. And then he had had it, but he just kind of been storing it and had wanted to finally sell it. And so, uh, he posted up a picture and the truck is literally completely original. The interior's never been apart. It's like has the original seats, all the original uh, trim and dash. Like it's literally a time capsule. And the coolest part is it has the service bed in the back. It has the sirens and the lights, the PA system. Everything is literally as it was that the guy, when he got the truck, and I have known probably three different people that have bought vehicles from a fire department. And they told me the exact same thing. 
firemen literally have nothing to do other than wax trucks and make chili. And they, they keep perfect records and like the service records. So soon. So I saw the truck and it was in Northern Colorado, kind of Wyoming area. And I tried to get Garrett and a couple guys to go look at it. And finally I couldn't get anybody to go look at it. And, uh, I was like, you know what? I got a day or two off. So I grabbed DJ. We jumped in the truck with the trailer and drove up there and went and saw it. And as soon as we pulled up, I was like, Oh man, this thing's ours. And the coolest part is the guy had, all the original documentation. It still has the warranty card, um, the service manual, the full history of the truck of when it, of who owned it, how it was sold, what it was done, the whole thing. And then it has service maintenance records every year of the truck. And like, it's never been a part. And so, uh, we ended up cutting a really good deal on it. Like as soon as I showed up, I mean, I was over the moon cause uh, a GMC one ton crew cab that's never been a part is super rare. The guy like basically just gave it to us. Uh, I kind of felt like I almost felt like I stole it from him, but I paid what the dude wanted. Uh, we loaded it up and drove it home. And, uh, so what I do is we drive around with the sirens going off and I let Cashy sit in the front and he gets to hit the buttons and like all the sirens fire off. And so, uh, pretty funny, uh, the other night DJ and I were driving it around and, uh, Jesse James is my neighbor. And so we pulled up outside Jesse's shop and started basically running the lights and we got on the PA and we're calling him a hack at which point he came out and it was pretty funny when he was in there forging these like, you know, massive like uh, ashtray things on his 350 ton press and so uh, we were bullshitting with him but like that type of stuff where like you know to me that's hilarious the fact did you have to get a fire truck because you were having so many um uncontained fires in your yard (laughs) no i just uh so so what i'm gonna do and this is the interesting thing i have been collecting parts as you guys know i have a container and we kind of like scavenge parts and whatever Lots, lots of lawn art too oh dude we got parts for days so i have been collecting parts for to build this truck uh, for years, not knowing that this was the truck, but I knew that like the perfect truck was out there. I just had to be patient and she would show up and she showed up as a red fire truck. And, uh, I got parts to, to do some really neat stuff with her. So I'm going to build her up into a pretty cool truck. I'm only moderately offended that you haven't even thought to get like a 1970s police cruiser. Uh, that's coming. It should, because that would be uh, badass. Uh, I have an idea. Um, we're not there yet. So, so as you guys know, like I acquire things based on where my skill set is at the present moment. And so the skill set to build this truck into what I want to do with it, I have that skill set. But there's a whole other skill set that I need to develop to be able to do a real, like I want to find a, a the, the Blues Brothers uh, police cruiser. Remember the one they're like cop tires? Yeah. Amazing. A mission from Gad. Except I want to put it on like a long travel, like kind of trophy truck suspension where you could basically like jump that thing, like Dukes of Hazard style and have it just keep kicking ass. I like it. So So, now that you have the fire truck, are you guys going to do like a, the men of power athlete calendar for like 2019 where (laughs) y'all no, but, uh, and like lounging on a fire truck. (laughs) Well, what I think I'm going to do, is uh the the logo they have on the door is terrible so i've already done like a like a graphic redoing of the logo and uh i'm gonna like uh, i'm I'm just gonna like i'm I'm gonna do some cool stuff to it and i'm gonna i'm gonna make it into my daily driver but i gotta like i gotta ditch some of the so i i gotta pull the uh the light bar off the top and pull out the red lenses so it'll just be white lenses but i want to kind of like keep it pretty original i just want to kind of do like some cool stuff underneath it and uh you have to take the red off the top to make it legal 
Yeah, yeah. It it still has all the red, like I it yeah. has all the red lenses in the in the lights and the red on the front. So I ordered amber and I'm gonna run amber in it. And then uh I gotta do some stuff to it. Like I'm gonna I, I gotta put a little lift, wheels and tires and a few things, but I'm just gonna kind of progress it and kind of build it into a pretty cool ride. But like that type of stuff to me that I can, you know, like that's what I dig on. Um, but I don't know, it, it's it's pretty hilarious. I really the fact that uh that I knew my son would lose his mind. He like freaks out. Like as soon as I walk outside, he's like fire truck and he jumps in there and I'm like, all right, let's go. And we drive around and he gets to hit the siren and talk on the thing. And I think to myself, like if I was a three-year-old little kid and my dad went out and bought a fire truck so we could drive around our property running the siren, I'd be like, I'd be over the moon. And then what I want to remember too, or I think it'll be funny is like, you know, I, I like, one day my son will get up and be like, dude, my dad and his friends were crazy. He bought a fire truck and we used to drive around with the sirens and like blowing on the deal. And people be like, what, where do, where do you find a fire truck? Oh, he and his crazy friends drove to Northern Colorado to get it. Texas. Yeah. They had a day or two off. Like that's the, that's the type of adventures that I like. So we got we'll a fire see. truck now, Callie. Yeah. Soon he'll be old enough to go on those adventures with you. And <laughs> I, I hope he's not this stupid. I hope he's super smart and uh, just does it. But one of the better things we got is um, so of, of all the stuff, uh, my, my one daughter, Jamie's into like hatch moles and, you know, Christmas comes uh, of all the stuff that, that she got from like my family and us, whatever. The one thing that she is obsessed with is chess. We got her a chess board. Oh, nice. Oh, my God. Dude, she has been up like watching these like YouTube videos of these like Russian chess theorists and like going over like the theory of chess and how to play. And she's like, she's like up this morning. She's like, is there any Russian guys we can watch to learn how to play chess? So I like plugged her in with these guys on YouTube. And then she's over there. She's like, I'm pretty sure I can win in two moves. I'm like, all right, let's do it. And so um, she is obsessed with the idea of, of, of uh, becoming really good at chess. That's I told great. her that there's, there's clubs at school. You can play chess. And she's like, I will beat them all. I'm like, all right, let's get working. <laughs> Pretty funny. Uh, that's fantastic. So, so yeah, so that, uh, I, a few things like I'm, I'm not much of a resolutionist, but I, I definitely need to plug back in, um, into the talk to me, Johnny space and start pushing a little more content out there. And I think for a lot of stuff, I kind of worry that, um, it won't be relevant to people. So I've kind of hung back a little bit, but at this point, I think, you know what, I'm not necessarily writing for other people. I'm writing for myself. And then the other one is, is, um, what else? Um, we got some, I, I mean, I feel like we knocked out a lot of stuff here at the ranch. Yeah. We still got some stuff to do. Uh, and the other big one, I think, um, obviously we got to build a fire truck. <laughs> um, John, can you speak on the the importance of skill acquisition? Because I know this is one of your goals with with welding and always finding other guys to learn from, like going to, out to the Sorenex crew and you know popping out with those guys, and then talking with Jamie. Like we were in the weight room and she was telling me about chess and challenged me, but then you said, "All right, but understand, you can't get mad if you lose." Like that is a big lesson in skill acquisition that. <laughs> Um, you've almost mastered at this point as a, a jack of all trades. So what are lessons within skill acquisition as you venture to now teach your daughters as well as continue to grow your uh, repertoire? So, all right. Uh, something I do, 
at the end of every year is I turn this awful percept, uh, you know, I have to think I'm a pretty perceptive person and I'm pretty good on like understanding who people are, where they fit into the grand scheme and where their strengths and their weaknesses are. And I've been kind of doing this just kind of ad hoc with our community with, uh, with our team of like, you know, who you are, like, you know, who Chris McQuilkin is, what are his strengths, what are his weaknesses, what does he need to improve? Um, and I think just, you have to do that, uh, just to continue to grow. And I think if it comes from somebody who really just cares for you and legitimately uh, counts you as a friend and cares for you and loves you, I think at that point, it can be a hard pill to swallow, but they're not doing it to be mean and they're not being, doing it to, to be disingenuous and hurt you. They're doing it because they want you to grow. And uh, I didn't really understand this um, for a long time, actually, until I became a parent that... Uh, if you just congratulate people and tell them the great job they're doing all the time, that they never really ever get any user based feedback that allows them to grow that like, you know, you learn more from your defeats than your victories kind of a deal. And so, so I, I really pointed back on myself. Um, one of my biggest weaknesses and even though I do it a ton is um, I don't necessarily like how I convey myself in terms of public speaking. So like on the podcast or when I get a chance in a public forum, I use filler words, I think, and use words like I think instead of just coming out with definitive statements. Um, I say, um, and I do things that like this, that I, you know, gather my thoughts and I put filler words in place to allow my thought to catch up with my mouth. And I think sometimes it comes out and makes me sound like an idiot. And when I listen to myself, I get pissed off and I write down notes. And I think there's a lot better way for me to convey my message. Um, I like watching people that are really good speakers. You know, I worked with Arthur Joseph years ago uh, before the girls were born. And Arthur Joseph was, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, a speech coach, you know, you know, public speaking guru that had worked with like, you know, Tony Robbins and Arnold Schwarzenegger. And I met him through an NFL deal and uh, I had three or four sessions with him and ended up my wife ended up having the kids and I didn't have an opportunity to get back with them. So uh, I've read his books and, you know, I look at every time I get up to. Uh, you know, public speak, whether it be in this forum on a podcast or whether it be at the symposium or at a seminar or anything that we do, I look at this as an opportunity to sharpen my blade. But unfortunately, unless I get user feedback from somebody who's better than me, then that feedback kind of falls on deaf, deaf ears. And I need to improve upon that. If I'm going to convey my message and influence, you know, not just a few hundred or a few thousand, but bigger, bigger groups, I need to be better on conveying my emotions, my ideas, connecting with people and having them listen to me and know that, you know, I'm, I'm a, you know, very good version, but like I'm, I'm polished. And so one thing that's always kind of bothered me over the years is when I watch myself speak or I listen to a podcast, it just doesn't feel as polished as I need to be. And that is, kind of a little upsetting for me because I felt like when I left college, having, you know, been a rhetoric major and done a lot of public speaking and a lot of different things, I felt like I was more engaged. And even back when I've gone back and read some of my old papers, like my train of thought and how I weave things together was so much better. And the reason being is I was in that fight. And so this year I have a couple things that I want to improve upon. I want to be able to improve upon my spoken word and how I convey my message in a better way. And I just need to get better. And so that's, that's one. The other one comes down to um, uh, my fighting skills. 
you know, I, I talked about this one last year and, uh, you know, my, my right shoulder's fucked up. So I haven't really been able to do a ton of stuff, but I'm just going to kind of jump right in and, um, I got to get back in and actually start learning to using my hands and feet and start actually boxing. Um, to me, that's, uh, you know, when I felt my best is when I was most skilled with my hands and I was really good with my fight stuff. So that's important to me. Uh, obviously we have to go in and do some stuff in the gym. Um, as Texas, you know, like, what are we going to do on our next deal? I'm really excited for, to jump in and we're, uh, do some power athlete metabolic conditioning cycles and, uh, really push our training in that way. Um, and then the other one is, is in skill acquisition, like we talked about, which is kind of the, the idea of learning. And I think it goes back to this idea of always be a white belt. I can't remember who I heard it from. Um, but I, you know, I always like the idea of being a beginner because I love the, the idea of like a, of a journey that I can look and say, this is where I started. I put this many time, uh, this much time, these many hours, I had these mistakes and to see a physical progression like case in point, uh, you know, I was welding and a guy asked me, you know, somebody kind of hit me on Instagram and was like, Hey, you know, I, I want to get into welding. How long did it take you to get good at welding? And I told the guy, I said about a year of really being awful. I would weld and I couldn't figure out why I was shitty. I went and I worked with people, they would help me with things. And then I realized that like nobody could give me information or could give me pointers if I didn't have the practical base to understand it. So like, as I was welding, if I, if I was welding and somebody watched it, Hey, you're welding too fast. If you're going to weld that fast, you got to increase your wire speed, or you got to be able to adjust your technique based on, on your amperage and your wire speed and how you all kind of put it together. And if you can do that, you know, and then you can have an intelligent conversation, but without the volume of work on the front end, that information isn't nearly as useful. So and if one, I just, actually, you could argue too, that, you didn't necessarily get good at welding in a year. I mean, you just learned how to weld. You're not, I mean, better, I know your work is good, but. Oh yeah. It's, it's, it, it's, believe me, it's not anything to where like, it's good enough to pass. Right. Uh, for like somebody that knows kind of what the fuck they're doing. Right. Uh, right. like, like my buddy, um, you know, will, uh, you know, who's, you know, if you guys look him up, he's on Instagram, he's seven, one, four speed metal. Um, he is, probably one of the best TIG welders I've ever seen. I mean, he's the guy that taught me to TIG weld and really, you know, and then Roger got me into the idea. I remember Roger told me nobody ever regretted learning to weld. And then Roger's I, good at welding. <laughs> well, he's a, but he is a structural stick welder. Yeah. So like he, like he's, he's a gorilla type dude, like the really high end, like meticulous, like welding on the space shuttle, trophy trucks, you know, chromoly, uh, aluminum, like all that TIG welding, that super fine deal. Like my buddy Will is, is just unbelievable to the point where uh, there was like, he was battling some dude on some Instagram page on like something that wasn't even related to welding. And he like tagged me in it and I made some comments. And then the dude he was battling was like, yeah, I just clicked on your page. Uh, I was going to talk shit, but you're a really good welder. And um, yeah, just, I'm going to go away now. And like, it wasn't even about welding, but his welding is that good. And, uh, you know, he's, he's just, that's all he's done. That's, that's what he does. It's, it's his, it's his, you know, it's, it's how he pays the bills. It's what he does 40, 50 hours a week. And he's done it for years. And he's, you know, those guys are incredible. But when you look at the amount of time that it takes to master something, and then to realize that these skills are, are, you know, a road, if you don't focus on them and use them that, you know, if you don't pick up the gun or I don't pick up the torch and I don't weld for a couple of weeks, all of a sudden I go back to where I was. Now my ability to progress goes extremely, you know, much faster, 
but like mm-hmm. skills are uh, perishable. So case in point, uh, which is like the analogy of lifting weights. I mean, how many times have you taken like a few days off from the gym or you take a week off and all of a sudden you decide like, Hey, I'm going to, uh, you know, go back in there you get underneath the weight and it feels heavy and you start squatting or you start lifting weights and you think to yourself, dude, we've been doing this for years. This is how you disrespect me. Like, like, like how come this stuff never got easy? How come this doesn't go in this direction? And so it's just, it's the same thing with all these skills, but the problem and what I try to explain to my daughters is they want to be, they want to be good at something so that they can be good at, or they can be better than somebody. Like, for example, I want to learn to play chess. I want to be really good at chess so I can beat all my friends and I want to be good at it. But what they're not okay with is the progression that it takes to get good. They just want to be insulin good because yeah. in their mind, they just see the end result. And over time you develop. And I go back to what my good buddy Bundy said. He said, remember the party's on the road. He used to tell me that he was, he was an outlaw biker and a, you know, professor of German and just a really, really amazing dude. Uh, been one of my, you know, closest friends, he just would always tell me, he's like, remember the party's on the road. And, uh, I, and I kind of joked with him. He's like, no, man, it's just an analogy. Like all the good stuff happens in the journey. Once you get to the destination, that's the end. Like once you get good at something, then like you're good at it. Okay. Now what? Like the, the trials and the tribulations and the, the crappy welds and here and not doing this and this, all of that stuff is what gives you the breadth of experience so that when you get to the end, you understand how to, how to wield it. Um, you yeah. know, like if, uh, you know, like whether it was kind of like, you know, like uh, playing football or fighting or any of that stuff. I mean, a- any of the, the skills that I've learned, uh, I remember the progression that it took to get to that point. And that's what gives me uh, the perspective to look back upon. And, um, you know, I mean, like, uh, I was talking, I was talking to my brother the other day and he called me cause my nephew is 13 and he's getting ready to lift weights. And my brother hit me up and he's like, Hey, uh, I told Luke, you need to start lifting weights. And, uh, he said, you know, uh, you know, what should I do? And he's like, well, let's call your uncle John. Like your, your uncle John will know. And he goes, you know, the fact that like he, you know, the fact that you got to play in the NFL and these things like those are big things for a 13 year old, like that his old, that his uncle who, you know, is his godfather, you know, played in the NFL and got to see him play. And it's a big deal for him. And, uh, he's like, you know, whatever you put out there, he's going to follow. And I told him, I'm like, you know, I spent the last 10 years of my life developing a skill set for, a 13 year old boy who means the world to me as my godson and my nephew can call me and say, uncle John, I want to start lifting weights. Where do I start? And I'm like, don't worry. I got you. Why? Because this is what I've done for a living. Like, it's like, Hey, it's like, <laughs> it's like my brother Ed, right? Uh, he, he just had that whole thing. If you guys watch the new date or the new dateline, the case that my brother was defending, um, it, he, he was on there, but like, that's the level, you know, like you get into a situation do you have the skill set to progress? And do you have the ability to look at it? Not just from like a book learning to be like, Oh, these power athlete guys said this, but being like, man, when I was 13 years old, these are the mistakes I made. This is when I went back in time and I understand this is how I can progress it. And if you can follow this progression, it's going to be a hard road, but you're going to be so much farther ahead than if you didn't. Yeah. And I can tell you that. And yeah. So uh, to, like skill sets to add just layers to this, John, there are stages to the journey and we talk about the life cycle of an athlete and we don't want to take what you were doing as a pro and give it to the, the nephew. So it's important to understand there are 
it's a life cycle to life as well. You know, we want to get to the point where we can learn. And it was Tate Fletcher who talked about being a white belt at the symposium, always being a white belt, but getting to that point that you can learn. That's our goal with the methodology, puts you in a position to learn what you're seeing in the weight room. You can understand it. And the base level of strength with the bedrock, that's getting to the point where then we've earned the right to do all these cool things that make us more athletic. We've established that base level and it's the hero's journey. You're going through one stage at a time, life cycle of an athlete. All of these things have, you know, origins and connections. And if we have perspective, we can understand where we are in that cycle. In and I do, I do think that a big aspect of that, that we have touched on a lot is the risk for failure and experiencing failure. And, uh, I know for me personally, like when you talk about skill sets, I mean, I have experienced more failure in the past three years. Um, and then sort of like leading up to that, even working for power athlete, like very humbling experiences into sort of more severe, um, uh, visceral humbling, uh, failures. And, um, those are, those are so imperative for growth and for perspective. The world does not revolve around you. You are in charge of your own development. Nobody owes you anything. You will be humiliated. You will fail, but how do you handle that? Nobody gives a shit. If you fail, I always remember that one thing, my friend said to me a long, long time ago, probably 15 years ago, um, called me and asked me if I was going to somebody's birthday party and I just wasn't feeling like going. It's so, so dumb, but I just went on this probably 10 minute rant about all the reasons why I didn't feel like going. And he just interrupted me and he said, Callie, nobody cares about you as much as you think they do. No one's going to notice if you're not there. I'm just asking if you're going to the party. And I remember that all the time because he was a good friend. And it's just something that is just that always sticks out in my mind. It's, you know, and I, I think kind of going back to the, the, the challenges, the experiences, the sport, whatever it is, having that ability to suck for a little while, like you talk about John, and then, um, and then develop yourself beyond that. It takes, it, it just takes, um, I guess it just, it, it, it takes a little bit more of being outside yourself. Nobody owes you anything. That's what kind of I've experienced this. Yeah. That's what I tried to teach, I guess, coaching high school athletes and using bedrock, using that linear progression to create failure, you know, outside the classroom for the first time in their lives. And that's, that's an amazing tool. It's almost poetry in motion, you know, going back to earlier, the bedrock, it, it builds in failure and it's all on you. But then mm -hmm. we, as a coach can kind of guide the, the next actions for that athlete to aim for those high school or novice athletes, create perspective or teach them how to react to this particular situation. And, and it doesn't matter. Like yeah. it's the weight room. So, so it's just to kind of pair it off of that kind of like nobody cares thing, which I think is really interesting. Um, I think like in the, in the grand scheme of things, uh, the only people that really care are the ones that have vested interest in your improvement and who you are. Um, like, like for example, like we had the symposium and 
I wanted people, I wanted many people to come to the symposium, not for any other reason other than I knew that there was going to be some amazing conversations and potentially somebody's life changed. Like there was something that they were going to hear that was going to alter their trajectory. And so, uh, was I sad you weren't there? Yeah, I'm sad because you, you got to miss a great event. Uh, you know, is it going to keep me up at night? No. I mean, like, uh, you know, and like, uh, you know, I hit up Matt Vincent, Matt Vincent hit me up a day or two before the symposium. Hey bro, sorry, I can't make it. I'm like, I'm sorry too, because, um, you need like need the community of this thing. You need to hear it and you need to see it. And like, you know, like everybody needs that kind of replugging in and like Feel that the energy in the room. Yeah. And like, I got to, I mean, I, I talked way more than I ever want to at a symposium. Um, but what's kind of neat is I get to take the audience on a journey cause I know the speaker or I know the, the counterpart to me, um, you know, as I'm sitting at the table with them and I just want them to have the same connection I do. And so I'm trying to share my connection with a whole bunch of people. And if you're not there, then am I sorry for it? Um, I'm sorry you missed the opportunity. Uh, am I going to feel sorry for you that you can't know everybody has to decide their level of involvement, how far they want to get into this thing. And if you're not ready for it, you know, the age old, like, you know, the, you know, the master appears and the student is ready age old deal. Like not everybody's ready there for, to make the life change. Everybody's not, and we're not some fucking wacky Tony Robbins fucking cult that's looking to change your deal. Oh but yes, I think, we are. <laughs> I think what happens is that you, you gain like a, a, I guess you could like a, I don't know what the right word is, but like, like human, it's not humanity, but like, and I'm going to fucking make up a word like humanization. Like you become this, like, like you humanize things where now all of a sudden you listen to the trials and tribulations of these people and you realize that they're going through the same struggles and the same fight and same moments that you have that, that the, the, the feelings that you're having or this and this is not unique to you that it's happened on, you know, uh, every person at some point. I remember when, um, when I, I told my dad, my wife was pregnant, my dad made a funny point. He's like, you know, uh, um, he, he liked my wife and was always very complimentary of her. And he's, he made a funny comment that I, I have, uh, I still laugh about, but he said, you know, uh, he said, you know, uh, Kate seems great. She's very down to earth. She doesn't strike me as the type of woman who would believe that she's the first one to ever give birth. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, well, I've been around uh, a lot of different women and seen guys get married, you know, this and this. And there's a few women out there who act in such a way that they that they believe that they're the first person on earth to ever give birth, that they don't realize that every human being on the planet has entered this way. And this is just a simple part of life. And I, I kind of laughed a little bit because I've had, you know, like the, you know, the dramatic and my, my wife was like, you know, I am having twins, you know, and you saw her and she was, you know, upbeat in this, but other people act like, oh, you know, like, it's just, it's like me, you know, I bitch about being tired from having kids, but every father that's been in the home, you know, has had, you know, with kids has had the same experience and it's a rite of passage. And so I thought that was really an interesting point by my dad, who also had six kids. So I think the nobody cares thing is extremely like, um, interesting humanity. Like, like nobody effectively cares, but in the grand scheme, like Callie, if you miss that party, people be like, Oh shit, I wish Callie was here. Not because they were concerned with, you know, I wonder why Callie isn't here. Is she mad at us being like, because Callie is usually a kick in the pants in a good time. You get a couple drinks, pop the sunglasses out or pop a lens out of a, a pair of sunglasses and she's ready to go. And I think people like to have people around them that want to have fun. You know, the, uh, 
The other one too, is I think that people kind of lose the idea of responsibility. That's another one. Like, I think you have a responsibility to present yourself in the best light and to control your thoughts and your words and your actions and to be a genuine person. Um, I think if you do something wrong or, you know, you fuck mm -hmm. up or you say something, I think you take responsibility and be like, it's fucked up. I shouldn't have done that. Or I shouldn't have acted in such a way. And I think, um, one thing that I've really focused on, uh, doing within the last you know few years is like apologizing when I'm wrong. Um, I run into people all the time that like can never admit wrong and can never, uh, apologize for it. And I think like the day that you learn that like, and then I also learned this being married that sometimes an apology and saying, sorry, when I don't necessarily think I'm wrong, sometimes gets everything moving in the right direction to have a better mm -hmm. conversation. And mm -hmm. so like, that's a big one. Um, the other thing that like really this year has kind of taught me, um, death is final. Like death is this like, final moment um you know and like really seeing it with my dad even though people around me had since passed away and whatever but to like see the process and to see this and to realize that like you know i mean for all the good you you know for all like the you know the followers on instagram or the money or the cars or any of the shit that you accumulate all that stuff is is somebody else's problem when you pass away like, let's say, you know, you have a house, you have a car, you have a great watch, you have all these suits and everything, and you pass away. The person who's there left holding it, they have to deal with your shit. And you know what? It doesn't mean anything to them. All the things that you thought were so important to you, when you die, you can't take them with you. They're not there in the, in, in the hospital room at your final moments. You know, you're on your deathbed. You're not wishing, like, God, if only I had, you know, bought that brand new Porsche or if only I'd have this. No, that shit isn't there. Really, it's the people that you've, you know, that have been around you and your friends and your family and the people at your last moment who, you know, when you have your, you know, Saving Private Ryan moment where like, tell me I was a good man, you know, tell me I, I did what I was supposed to and I earned this. And I think like in that final moment, um, you know, the idea that like, you know, I did what I was supposed to, I influenced who I was supposed to, um, I did the best I could, I wasn't a piece of shit. And, uh, I feel good for the volume of work. So when I have to show up and defend my life, like that Melbourne or that, uh, um, that Brooks movie that, we, that I referenced on a podcast many times ago, like I feel comfortable defending what I did in my existence. So like that one with my dad was just really interesting, man. And then I'll tell you what the internet's really taught me. I was, and I've, I've been writing these down as I go is you can't like, regardless of how you try, not everybody's going to like you. Like, that's a weird one. I tell my daughters this. I'm like, when you go to school, not everybody's going to like you. And if you spend all your time trying to get everybody to like you, you're never going to have the time to work on yourself and you're not going to be happy. You're just going to be a pleaser. And like, that isn't good. And like, I think on the internet, especially with Power Athlete and Johnny Wad and all the things that we do, I can just do the best version of what I think people want. And if I, and really I was just looking for some humorous responses and all of a sudden people got all fucking serious on me when I really didn't want it. And, uh, shame on me for trying to like generate humor and conversation and try to be tongue in cheek. And then all of a sudden people actually like, I'm surprised nobody was like, is John Wellborn fucking trolling us? Not a single <laughs> person thought that. Everybody was like, I think you need to do this and this and this. And everybody's so high and mighty to point it out. Where in actuality, man, I would have just commented and been like, Hey man, I love it. The workouts are fun. You're funny as shit. Like, let me go out and like, you know, I'm going to rob a bank and force all these people. Like, dude, I was just looking for some funny shit, man. I was just looking for people to, to put hum humorous things. Like, I don't know, more shirtless selfies, John. Like I'm just looking for funny stuff. Oh my God. Go, go read the comments on Johnny Wobb. Like dude, the, the, the seriousness of this shit 
is like astronomical and this and people are and maybe because they feel so vested that like it just man they i, I should have put like no serious responses I'll, I'll delete all serious responses but uh, I'm learning this internet. I'm learning the internet better. Well, the, uh, the other one too, which I've been really focusing on is, um, you remember the Henry Rollins, like, uh, you don't have spare time. You don't have free time. All you got is time and time's extinguishing. Like it's, it's pretty fascinating that like in the grand scheme of things, when you look at time, it's by far our most precious, precious commodity and our most expensive form of currency. Right. I mean, like case in point, like text, when you ask Luke to do something, what does he do? He gives you all the reasons he can't do it because he's so busy magically doing other things. <laughs> right? Hey, what do you think about, oh, I can't do this because then he gives you all these things. So but he his, does he, control the information, John. Well, but like, that's a weird thing. Like, like there's, uh, he has effectively segmented his time into these different value adds. Whereas... If you come up and you ask me something, what do I say? Sure, let's give it a shot, right? I give, I give my time freely because I know it's, it's the opportunity I have to learn something and to get better. I don't, if you ask me to help you with something or, hey, what about this? What are, I always am like, yeah, I'll, I'll find time to do it because it's important. I don't just tell you all the things and all the reasons I can't do it because I don't have the time because I've effectively misered my time. So part of that thing comes down to like, you know, if, if uh, time is your real life currency, how do you want to spend it? Do you want to you know, hoard it because you're so nervous that you're not going to have enough time? Or do you spend it freely because you know what? The time that I give is going to be an experience that allows me to grow. And, um, you know, like I like to, you know, I, uh, I like to spend it, but I'm never going to hoard it. Like I, I realize I only have so many hours on this earth and I get to spend them and divide them up. But at the end of the day, if, uh, it, you know, if I can't invest my time in the things that are most beneficial to me, which looks like, you know, like helping my children, um, you know, like making sure, you know, like I have a good relationship with my wife, the things we do here at the rate, you know, just like my, the full palette of existence. I feel that like balance is by far my most ex important thing, right? Like, um, I, you know, I mean, you guys know I have hobbies and I have other things. I like to work on trucks. I like to weld. I like to, you know, do all this stuff. I always think like, does everybody have these hobbies? Or did the fact that like, it took me years to develop what I wanted to have a hobby, like text, like, what are your hobbies? Do you like to read? What else do you like to do? do? You like to, you like to train, you like to lift weights. I mean, do you like to go dancing? Do you like to cook? Like, how do you spend your time other than reading strength conditioning? Reading, let's see, human nature books to try to understand athletes better. Oh yeah. I got to work on my hobbies, John. Yeah. I mean, uh, Luke too. I mean, I, you know, uh, you know, do you, do you know who's great at hobbies? Spanton. Spanton has all these things. Like he went fly fishing the other day. He gets to go hunting. Like, uh, I mean like great stuff like that. And I, I really appreciate the fact that like he takes the time to do those things. Cause as a parent, you know, you like, you know, you're running around with the kids and you know, all, all the time. So you're always focused on doing stuff with them, but like that idea to be able to go out and do some fun stuff. Um, yeah, man, I, uh, I like, I think you have to have like, like my dad had no hobbies. My dad's only hobby was work and going to football games. And then when I stopped playing football, I didn't go to football games anymore. So like when I got done and I realized that like, you know, his, his whole passion was my family and work. And that's what he'd love to do. Uh, I thought, you know what, I want to have some hobbies. I want to do some other things, um, you know, and I want to be able to have a diverse offering and just be able to be able to do more stuff. So Oh man, I could talk forever and I probably sound awful. So I need to go ahead and polish my public speaking skills. No, and speaking of time, 
time being a commodity. This is a good long one. Yep. Oh, cool. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of the Premier Podcast, Dan. Strength and, and conditioning. conditioning. Ing. Cool. No, you missed the ink. No, I didn't. Bye. Yeah, I wouldn't say I missed it. All right. Drop on, drop on, drop on. Kick the wheel. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. We are wrapping up 2018 with a pretty killer lineup of podcast guests, but I'm curious if you guys have anyone else that you'd like to hear from or anyone that you've heard from that you want to hear from again. Who is your ideal podcast guest? If you have someone in mind, please shoot me an email, Callie at PowerAthleteHQ.com. That's C-A-L-I at PowerAthleteHQ.com. We're always looking to pick the brain of someone new and potentially manson them into becoming our friend. Until next time and next year, bye!